any uh, immediate, I got some places to go if you don't, but any immediate questions, any blanks I missed, Lee? One D. One. Okay, one D. For the Lord's salvation, the desire of his heart, victory. The desire of his heart is victory. There's supposed to be a semicolon there. It doesn't, it's just not obvious. And then that we may praise and exult in the Lord. Praise and exult. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, Deb. Yeah, uh, we were downstairs and we kept blinking in and out. Um, can you go through number 1C? I think I've got them, but I'm not sure. Okay. For the Lord's favor, favor, full fellowship, complete forgiveness. Thank you. Any other? Oh, we got more. Sarah. To be. To be. Wow, we're missing all types of stuff. Deliverance. 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 No comp. Oh, two B is confidence. Sorry, one B is deliverance. Oh, you gotta start all over again. I'll print you guys off new ones. And two B is confidence. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. One D is salvation. One D is sal- yeah. We're all over the place here. These blanks. I, I'm sorry. I, this is so unprofessional. Um, okay. Okay. Any other, any non-blank related questions? Um, okay. While you guys think of, if you have any, turn to first Chronicles 20, second Chronicles 20. Uh, we looked at how, uh, in, in second Chronicles, Jehoshaphat, calls together a fast, and they pray, and he humbles himself, and he prays for God to send strength. What's similar, in fact, so similar that some of the commentators actually try to place this to this event, ignoring the Davidic title, um, is that you get the same pattern. You get this prayer from the people, prayer from from Jehoshaphat, and then here a, a Levite stands up. Look at verse 13. We read to verse 12. I'd like to pick up in verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head and his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites 
of the Korathites. And the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise the Lord, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy one another. So the coalition against Israel turns on itself. There's infighting and they, anyway. And so the pattern of the prayer, the confident reply, hear the confident reply coming as the Spirit of the Lord comes upon this this Levite, which is why I certainly can't be dogmatic that the singular voice in Psalm 20 is David. But since the events of Psalm 20 happened well before this. I think, if anything, Second Chronicles 20 is learning from Psalm 20, not the other way around. But just to be clear, it made a nice outline, prayers for the king, prayer from the king, prayer to the king. But, of course, I'm guessing might be too strong of a term, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm suggesting David is the singular voice in verse 6, but I certainly could be wrong. Um, it's some sort of leader in the in the congregation of which David would be eminently qualified, but that's that's a similar historical situation going on there. Any any questions on any of that? I got, oh, Lee. Give me it. You said that there was a short name of God, which I kind of think is I am. Is that yeah. his short, his yeah. like nickname, yeah. not a nickname, but what's the long name? Is it something that's so long we will never? Oh, no, no, no. It's not, see, it's not, okay. God has the, the name, the tetragrammaton, the, the, yeah, uh, the, four the, the four-letter name, Yahweh, yeah. is a sort of impossible conjugation of I am, the I am okay. one. But if you turn to Exodus 34, it introduces that long, we, I read it, Exodus 34, he says, he, the Lord passed by and said his name, and then you get something a lot longer. Um, and again, we think of name as the moniker, moniker the, the phonemes by which you're identified when someone vocalizes them. Here, I think in Exodus 34, it's more the name, the character, the personality, the reputation. Um, and so in Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So what we're about to hear can be referred to as the name of the Lord. And yet you hear, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So that's what I'm suggesting is like the longer name the further unpacking of the character of God. Um, not that there's an alternative to Yahweh, but as this is introduced as the name of the Lord and the Hebrew idea of names, character, this is, so in Exodus 3, you get the self-existence, the, uh, the I aming one. And here, the God who's forgiving and doesn't overlook iniquity. 
which is which which is really it's amazing how the cross resolves that because if I were Moses here, how do you have both orbs of this? In the first orb, you have abound merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, so do you forgive iniquity and sin, or do you not clear the guilty? Yes. And that becomes perfectly clear and resolved at the cross, where God does not overlook sin, and he doesn't look the other way. And yet, through the atonement of his son, he forgives our iniquity. But, but here, God's like, get two things about me. I am merciful, and I am gracious, and I forgive, and I don't let guilty people go free. And, yeah, and I don't know how much that Moses was able to put together, but there it is. So that, that's what I was referring to as the sort of longer name of God. Um, okay. It's really uh, huge in the flow of the Old Testament and Israel's story. You're starting from the beginning, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the calling, the building of the nation of Israel, and no one's had anything like this up until this point. You know, They're serving this God. They're walking with this God. They're obeying this God. They've made had covenants with this God, and then all of a sudden we have this huge, you want to know what I, you know, who I am and what I'm like. It's, it's massive. Well, the other, the other thing I mentioned this morning is, um, and, and again, think of how God reveals information about himself. We have the whole Bible, but of course, at this point, um, very little, if anything, has actually been written. I don't know if Moses had started writing. Eh, maybe when he came down in Exodus 20, he started writing there, but um, it's it's... The ink's not really dry if he has started writing. And so God's revealing himself, uh, and initially he's revealing himself verbally to Adam and Eve, but you think of Abraham and how little he could have known about God. He, you know, he may have heard the stories of what happened at the flood and at Babel, but uh, at Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah, and God reveals to him, he'll listen. I mean, think about that. The, the, it's you ever read it and you're like God's going to go down and investigate what like he doesn't know and he has to send angels to go and investigate well I think a big portion of that is he's about to do some serious shock and awe to Sodom and Gomorrah and he doesn't want Abraham to think that he's some petulant Canaanite deity throwing a temper tantrum and so I think largely for Abraham's benefit this this diligent inquiry gets done and he also gets these appeals. Well, what if there are 50? What if there are 40? All the way down. And so before he blows their stuff up, Abraham learns what God's about to do, he's doing deliberately, and he's doing calmly, and he was open to reason, and there was a weighing of evidence, and there was an intercession made. Now, it was ultimately a failed intercession because there weren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, but when the fireworks come and the, and the wrath comes, it's to be understood in the context of justice and evidence and, and deliberate intentionality and not some Canaanite deity who just lost his temper and freaked out. So you learn at Sodom and Gomorrah, God can be interceded with. And then in Exodus 33 and 34, it's the first time I'm aware of it successful. Because you remember God is going to destroy all of Israel and start over anew with Moses after the golden calf. And Moses pleads for the people, and the Lord relents. And Moses pleads that God, first he relents from destroying them, and then he relents from not going up with them. Because Moses says, if you won't go up with us, just kill me here, kill us here. What, what is our glory? What is our boast but that God travels in our midst? And 
he's he's bold, successfully intercedes twice for the people of Israel. So in, in the revelation of who God is in his character, Exodus 32, 33, 34, huge. We get this fuller name of God. We get um, a successful intercession. It's it's huge in the unfolding story of reveal as a as a huge point of revealing information about the character and heart of God. We're largely seeing God work through acts prior to this. Um, largely see Him reveal Himself through doing things, but here we get this this huge amount of of verbal information about who He is as He's revealing His own character to us. So uh, I. You, you will probably see me going again and again and again and again and again back to Exodus 32, 33, 34 because of how huge it is um, about revealing who God is. Okay, any, any other questions on any of that? Don't give him a mic. No, it's just like like in thirteens, like before the Lord with their little ones and their wives and their children. Who are the little ones? Like I would have thought they were children, but obviously the children are mentioned later on. So what? I'd say infants. Infants. It's still, but you no, know, it's, it's huge because they're not a children's church, right? They're there. No, not that children's church is a bad thing, but I'm saying there is. If we can't worship together in a group, something's wrong. Like. I think it's fine that we break into groups and there's age-appropriate teaching, and that's great. But I think it's also great that we gather together, and there's a pattern for that as well. Now, I think the distinction of that is they're, they're inf- it's making it clear, not just children. And someone can say, well, those are grown children. Infants. There's children. There's little ones. Um, that, that's, I think, all the distinction being made is. It's, it's emphasizing from the greatest to the least. They're all there. Um, yeah. It wasn't silly. I do believe you're capable of silly, but that wasn't silly. No, 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 no. Let's, let's not push our luck. Let's not push our luck. Um, let, me, let me talk for a minute about my, my thoughts in my head were clear. I, was, I don't know if you could tell. I, was t- I had to sit down for the last two songs just to make sure I was going to be. If you asked me on Thursday if I could stand up for 40 minutes, I would, don't think I could have. I was that tired. But I want to talk about the, uh, the three sort of... Um, three w- ways of reading this psalm to get meaning out of it. And you want to be careful. So the most obvious one is simply this psalm records a historical event. In fact, go to go in your Bibles to Psalm 20 because Psalm 21 appears to be a psalm written after the victory. Um, there's, there's some verbal connections. Look at, look at Psalm 21, verse 2. Well, just read verse 1 and verse 2. A psalm of David, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire. You see the connection there to verse 5? You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. And so 21 appears to be, and the way the Psalter's constructed, the psalm written on the other side of the victory. It certainly fits together thematically. So in the first instance, Psalm 20 is recording a real event. Something really happened. There was a real battle. And and so we can study it in that sense. And and there we can see how David acts. We can see how the people act. We can see how God responds. We can see and learn 
from that. And there's, there's profit there just in studying and reading that. Um, but then it's given to the choir master. Because when we think of the Psalms, some Psalms might simply be for David. You know, there, there's a record for him. It might not be a song that, you know, I should be singing necessarily. Um, in, in the sense that when the psalm says, I, can I identify myself as that I? Well, not always. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, well, Jesus can pray and sing that in, 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 on, on the cross. Um, I'm not sure, except maybe, I don't even know how I could in the new covenant, how I could, with the promises of God, never forsaking me, say that. Maybe I could pray it or sing it in a way I feel for, you know. There's a very real sense in which, like, only Jesus can pray Psalm 22 like that fully. And and so I want to be careful. I don't just, well, that's me, and plug myself in there. Um, And the same way we're dealing with David. David is the Lord's anointed. You and I are not the Lord's anointed. And so the story of David and Goliath is not about how little boys can have gumption and can go accomplish great things. It's about God's anointed, when he's faithful, is unstoppable because God works salvation through his anointed. That, that's the point of David and Goliath. It's not like you can go slay the giants of your life. It's let me show you what the Lord's anointed can do when he's faithful to God. He destroys his enemies because the Lord's anointed will come and will defeat sin and death and ultimately the devil. That, that's, what, that's what we're learning in, in the David and Goliath story. So the danger of plugging ourselves into and making ourselves the hero of the story is real. So when you're dealing with Davidic Psalms and David, and especially even as Psalm 20 references, you're anointed, right? Verse 6, you got it. Okay, what do we do with this? And so the second suggestion I had is, that we can read this as an example for believers. So David, man after God's own heart, the way he responds to trials, the way he responds to danger, are here at least is right and good. And this is given to the choir master. This is given as a general song for Israel to sing. What can we do when we face our day of trouble? Well, we can get other people to pray for us. How should we pray for other people? We could pray along these lines, according to God's character, according to their needs. So, so we are having a model here. You just got to be careful lest you fully step into this. I'm in the day of trouble and I'm the Lord's, no, I'm not the Lord's anointed. So you, you got to be careful with how you appropriate this. But certainly, faithful believers facing trials pray to God. They get others to pray for them. And in those prayers, they, they focus on God's character. They don't trust in other things. And they experience a confidence and a salvation and deliverance that comes from God. That, that, that's valid for us. And then third, this is ultimately going to be fulfilled in, in Christ, the, the anointed. And we know, I mean, think of, think of reading verse 6. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Well, the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus offered up prayers and supplications in his, in his torment, and he was heard, and God remembered his sacrifice, and it was pleasing and acceptable to God, and he raised him on the third day, and ultimately Christ will be victorious in the final battle in the end of the book of Revelation. And so what's true of David as the Lord's anointed and where his source of victory comes from in his military conflict is absolutely true of Jesus in his battle coming. So I've, those three distinctions, the, the original historical context, 
what models is there for us to follow from? What is there for us to learn and emulate and imitate? And then ultimately, you know, especially when you're dealing with messianic, kingly, Davidic Psalms, how does Jesus fit into this? Well, ultimately, this is absolutely true of Jesus. And amazingly, our prayers have a role to play in that final outcome. Um, they're, they're, they have effect. Um, so just because something's sure, just because we know Jesus will triumph and we know he will return, doesn't mean we shouldn't be praying that he will triumph and that he will return. Just in the same way that verse 9 cries out, O Lord, save, Hosanna, even after verse 6 announced, oh, I know he will. Okay, well, let's pray for it. You know, it's, it's not either or. So those distinct, yes, Matthew, yeah. A microphone from Matthew here. Do those, those distinctions, are, you just got to be careful, otherwise you can start making these psalms all about you, and they're not all about you. Um, yes. Not trying to say that they're all about me, by any means. Good. I'm um, just like, a, <laughs> uh, just something that kind of crossed my mind that I was a little curious about. So anointed, uh, like, definitions, like you're chosen, and we are all chosen before the foundations of the world to be God's sons. Anointed is not chosen. The, the, when I looked at the definition, it's like, you know, it, when one of the meanings is chosen, so like, if I'm reading it right, what does is, what is anointed mean in this? Anointing. It, like David was chosen oh. by God and anointed by God for that position. I'm not saying we're all, you know, no, the anoint- messiahs or whatever, okay. but... The anointing, the first reference to anointing was Moses anointing the Levites with oil. The initial one is pouring out of, okay. and it is a sense of setting apart, but the anointing is linked with actually some element of anointing. Um, so Moses anoints Aaron and the Levites for service. Then he sends Samuel to anoint David. David actually gets anointed. When he says he's the Lord's anointed, there's, there's a time. There's like a literal. Like, there's oil on him, yeah. And, um, and so the anointed one is a one set apart for, chosen in a sense, but it's not some broad turn of chosen. It's a very specific anointing. And so what begins to happen in the, uh, the scriptures is you start speaking with the Lord's anointed. So why won't David reach out his hand to strike down Saul? I dare not touch the Lord's anointed. Um, and so what you start to get is the Lord's anointed is someone special and someone you take seriously, even when that anointed is unfaithful, like Saul. He's the rogue anointed. He's the lawless, rebellious anointed one. David's just, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not touching him. Um, and so the, the theology of the Messiah, the anointed one, develops. Like Psalm 2 brings together the anointed one, the king, and son as one person, which is something the, the, the uh, interrogation committee from Jerusalem and John 1 didn't even figure out because they're asking John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? They didn't realize these come together in one person. Um, so... So you and I are not... Now, we've been anointed by the Spirit, in a sense. We are anointed in that sense, and I guess in a broad sense. That, yeah, that's kind of okay. what I was thinking, too. Because, you know, when David comes up as one of God's anointed, you know, one of the particular perks of that is the Holy Spirit. And we all also have the Holy Spirit as yes. being, you know, sons and daughters of Christ. I'd say it's probably more valid to look at it in this sense. We are united with and in fellowship with and therefore corporately within the Lord's anointed. And so his victory is our victory. His, his supremacy is our supremacy. But I just, I would be very careful of reading Psalm 110 with yourself in the seat there. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand to make your enemies a footstool. That's what, something God said to me. No, it just popped and, in my head and was like, how does this correlate? No, and I was like, no, I'm going to ask. But, Psalm, so that's, but that, that's precisely, like Psalm 110 would be precisely what you wouldn't want to put yourself in the center of. 
um, as if somehow the God said to Matthew Braun or Jeremy Kidder, I'm going to crush your enemies under your foot. Just wait a few minutes. We know that's Jesus. Now, we are in him, and when he comes to accomplish that crushing of his enemies, when he, I mean, Revelation takes Psalm 2, the rod of iron, three times and picks it up. We're there with him. We will participate in that victory. We will be part of that battle, right? Um, but it's his battle, and it's ours insofar as we're united to him. So in that sense, we can read ourselves into Messianic Psalms. We are united to the one to whom this is about. But um, here's a simple example. Can, could Dave, if Israel was faithful, and if David was faithful, did God promise that he would not let them be defeated in battle? I think so. I think if you read Deuteronomy, um, they can't lose if they're faithful. So that if they lose in battle, they should ask what did we do wrong. Um, I would not want to take that across to every believer in every conflict they're in and say, you, you. now ultimately, we will be victorious, the one who overcomes. And Revelation takes that up and John takes that up, that we, we, we can get knocked down, but we'll get back up. We, we will not be defeated. But... If you take the David and Goliath thing to your baseball game, if you take it to your <laughs> your competition, if you take it to your entrance exam for for uh, Matthew, you you could fail that test. There's no promise you'll pass that test. Yeah. Um, so David has claims and promises, and Israel's kings, if they're being faithful, have claims and promises you and I simply don't have. Uh, that that's where you want to make the distinction. So, so David, as the anointed king, so you go to the Davidic covenant, God tells him, like, hey, if you'll be faithful to me, I will establish your throne, I'll establish your kingdom. So David's got promises to him, and in the Mosaic covenant, Israel corporately has promises to them that they're calling upon that aren't necessarily, like, I can't promise you there'll be rain and the crops will grow if we'll all just be faithful to God. You could do that in Israel under the law like that was a legitimate go read deuteronomy you know 18 i mean 28 29 30 the blessings and the cursings are all there and hey guys if you'll just be faithful to god he will secure your borders and the you know, the the animals will have lots of babies and the the crops will grow and you will multiply and you'll dwell at peace and you'll be honored and all these things so those are the types of distinctions i'm trying to make because i think like modern day prosperity teachers take those promises from the mosaic covenant and they try to apply them today broadly and that's where you got to be careful saying okay on what basis do we do we get to say this is us this is for us and i'm just trying to justify that so we don't just read everything like it's about us um you know, I, I got where you're coming from. It's like, what popped in my mind is if we are also anointed, then what parts of the anointed where it's mentioned in the Psalms would be applicable? Because some are clearly applicable only to Christ, like you're talking about Psalm 2. Which ones, if we were anointed, like I was thinking, I'm like, is that how that works out? Which was why I was trying to get clarification. We, we, see, but I wouldn't say we're, anointed, we're the anointed. We have been anointed. So First John says, you have no one who needs to teach you of anything, for you have the anointing. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit. But anointing becomes the anointed in a titular title sense, we are never spoken of that way to my knowledge. Okay. And so... That's what I was I, trying to kind of figure yeah. out. Maybe so no, we, we have an anointing. We've been anointed, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we are united to the Lord's anointed. But I'm not aware of any passages that refer to us titularly um, as, the, as the anointed or the Lord's anointed. 
So, so that, yeah, I'd, I'd, yeah, there's a sense in which we have received an anointing. And so I guess what do you call someone who's received an anointing? They've been anointed. But in that title sense, oh, no. And by the time the New Testament shows up, the Christ is a title. It's, it's not somebody who's had oil poured on the head. No priest in, in Jesus' day would say, I'm the Lord's anointed because I've been anointed. It's, it's so clearly been built up to a singular person in office that it's, it's left behind. In the same way that diakonos means servant, right? But eventually it takes on a title of a role. So when Paul talks about the qualifications of a deacon, he's not saying, here's anyone who wants to serve, here's what they got to meet. It's clearly an office by that point. Well, aren't you and I servants? Sure. Are you and I deacons? No, we're not in the office of deacon, even though it means one who serves or servant. So that, that's the distinctions I'm trying to make. That, no, I'm, I'm catching you what you're you catching it. Smell what I'm stepping in? Okay. Yeah, no, I got you. Okay. okay. But, a good, but a good exercise to do, I just would encourage you with, is for any passage you're reading, is to um, ask yourself, okay, how do I appropriate this? All the scriptures for us, but sometimes we learn by watching. We're, we're sitting on the sidelines watching what happens. So, like, we read about the Exodus from, from Egypt and we see God's mighty saving acts. And we see how God preserves the seed of the woman. And we see how God births this nation. And yet, God's promises, you know, stand and you will see the salvation of the Lord, is not some, it's not a, the promise that God gives to Moses at the, at the, at, at the Red Sea is not a promise to you or me for our trouble. Don't do anything. You just stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. No, that's a promise God gave to Moses in a specific time, a specific place, and we get to watch that, and in watching that, learn about the character of God. Um, God's command to Hosea to go marry a wife of harlotry is not your command. You know, well, I'm claiming that verse. Well, good luck with that. You know, um, I don't think anyone <laughs> wants to do that. So you got to be careful when you're reading a passage about doing that. I, I remember seeing somebody once, um, what is it, uh, it's in First Samuel, um, where God's going to send his spirit and, and change the character either of David or of Saul, make him a new man. And somebody was trying to say oh, that was they're claiming that verse for themselves. I'm like, that's, that's not the way the Bible works. Um, so there are times where God's making statements about uh, people. I'll give you a classic one. Give me a classic one. Go to First Chronicles. Unless one everyone quotes, if my people... Yeah, let's take a look at that one. Um, classic text. Does anyone know the reference? If my people who are called by my name. Second Chronicles 7, 7.14. Okay, gotcha. Um, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I've seen that so many times with their land being a referent to the United States of America. That's not what that's talking about. That doesn't work. And that's precisely where, where you've got to say, okay, what's going on here? Well, What's this in the middle of? It's Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. That's the first clue. But go back to verse um, 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house and successfully accomplished. He has successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him. So the next clue is this. 
This is God talking directly to Solomon. Now, it may, so one of the things we got to consider when we read this is maybe all this is for me is I get to sit and watch and learn. Before you say, well, now God's talking directly to me. Well, in the first instance, it's the Lord appearing talking to Solomon. And so I've got to justify why what God says to Solomon is also true for me. It may be, but I've got to justify that. Because um, there are plenty of things God said to individuals that are not true for me. You know, God tells Abraham, your wife will conceive in her old age. You know, and I can't say, okay, great, Serena's going to have number eight. Because I'm claiming that verse. For No, it doesn't work that way. I, I know God, what's for me is knowing God said that to Abraham. So the first point is this is the Lord appearing to Solomon. And so we got to justify. Maybe you can justify it, but you got to justify. How do I then apply this to me? I have heard your prayer. So all of chapter 7 is Solomon's prayer, um, the dedication of the temple. And so God says, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. What place is that? What place? It's the temple mount. It's the temple. So now we've got a specific person and a specific geographic location. This place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, again, who are those people? The Jews. Turn from their, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and for, will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. So if you want to claim this verse, you need to go over to Jerusalem and pray in this place to qualify, as far as I can read this. Because um, it's very specific with the location. Um, now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So I think you could say it is the character and nature of our God, and we see it here, that when a nation and when a people humble themselves and call upon him and turn to him, he is gracious. We see that here. We see that with Nineveh, right? So I think you could say in a broad sense, if any nation, if any people, by and large, the majority of the people humbled themselves and called out to God. Is it consistent with God's character for him to be gracious to them, for him to bless them, for him to relent from disaster? Yeah, sure it is. And this would be an example of that. But this is a very specific promise made to Solomon about a specific geographic location. Um, and Solomon's prayer, if you turn back to chapter 6, this is an answer to that. So look at, look at that. Solomon's prayer of dedication, um, it's tied to the geography. And so the Lord's answer in 7 is an answer to this prayer in 6. And notice the specificity of 6. Um, pick it up in verse 14. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, with your hand. You have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man, lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way. So he's, he's referencing a conditional covenant. There's a condition. And if David and his descendants 
will be faithful, David and his descendants will never lack a man for the throne. And he's referencing that conditional covenant. You shall not lack a man for your throne to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons will pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed as you have spoken to your servant Israel. But will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. So he's aware then how paltry and how small and insignificant this house. And if you read through it, the house he builds for its day and era is, is lavish um, and huge and ornate. And yet he recognizes compared to who it is he's building it for, it's, it's nothing. Um, verse 19, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer of your servant, praise before you that your eyes may be opened day and night towards this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And then he goes through a number of if-thens. Okay? So we're establishing the location. This is about establishing the temple. And here's what I want you to do, Lord. I'm asking you to do when people pray towards this place. So the first um, contingency is in 22 and 23. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in his house, when you hear from heaven and act and judge your servants for paying the guilty by bringing his conduct upon his own head and vindicate the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Verse 24, next condition. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again, and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of your people and bring them again to the land you gave to them, to their fathers. Next one, 26. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, when they hear, then hear in heaven and forgive their sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon the land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land and at their gates, whatever plagues, whatever sicknesses there are, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands towards this house, when you hear from heaven the dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways, for you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to their fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner, next fifth contingency, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from far away for the sake of your great name and your might mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you. So Solomon's keep saying, if and when this happens, and they pray towards this place, hear from heaven and he wants them to do stuff. Six contingencies in verse 34. If your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you toward this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Notice the centrality of the temple and all of these prayers. Something happens, the people pray towards the city and towards this house, you hear from heaven. Verse 35, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Contingency 7, 
Verse 36, if they sin against you and there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to their enemies so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, yet if they return... If they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they are carried away and pray towards the land which you have given to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house, oh, there's the temple again, that I have built for my name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayers, their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now read the Lord's response to Solomon in light of that prayer. Verse, chapter 7, verse 12. When the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And then he starts listing some of the contingencies Solomon gave. When I shut up heaven so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear, there's that phrase, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. Do you see how Solomon gives a lengthy prayer? And it's about establishing the centrality of the temple and that if the people in whatever circumstances they're in sin or are unfaithful, but they will repent and turn and they pray towards this place, God will hear in heaven and then they'll be relenting. And God's answer is, I've heard you, Solomon, and yes, yes, I will. Well, that's a really specific context. And to try to pluck verse 14 out and apply it to us or to Canada or to, you know, France or whatever you want to do is is it doesn't work there's too many specifics so we can look at this and say hey what can we learn about this for us God loves to be gracious God responds to humility and brokenheartedness with grace you know, a broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise this is true and true of God from cover to cover of the Bible and so could we hope or think that if a given people humbled themselves and turned to God, he'd be gracious? Yeah, I think we could hope and think that. That's, that's the rationale of the Ninevites, right? That They hear the announcement of judgment. There isn't even a warning of if you repent. And they say, perhaps, perhaps God will be gracious. So sure. And if our country, people in our country, were to repent and humble themselves, might God be gracious? I think he might. Could I claim verse 14? Nope. Verse 14 would be an example of how God is gracious in responding to uh, people humbling themselves. But the specifics of Israel, the temple, Solomon's prayer, are too much for us to just grab verse 14 as if somehow praying towards that location no longer matters or the location no longer matters or any of those other things. That's, that's the danger of just grabbing a verse out of context. Does, does that distinction... So I don't want to make it sound like this verse is meaningless for us, but you can't simply just plug yourself in here because it's a nice-sounding promise. And, and claim it as your own. This is so specifically a response to Solomon's prayer. And Solomon's prayer is so specifically tied to a building that got built in a specific place on earth that you're really twisting the context to sort of grab this out of it. Does that make sense at all? You guys tracking with me? Okay. Just a lot of weird doctrines come from people grabbing verses and, and, uh, and trying to apply them to themselves. And I once heard about, uh, it was a charismatic church, 
the 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 prophet called on the the prophet called on some of the young men to find women they liked and march around them seven times so that the walls of their heart would fall down. And we laugh at that, right? Because like that's ridiculous. But that's only like four or five steps further when you just take everything and apply it to yourself. So we need to ask, what is the purpose of something that we're watching or learning? Um, and, and we all get that when Jesus, you know, I'll, I'll, oh, time's over. Good grief. I'm sorry. We're running for kids. I'll close with this. I'll close with this joke. It's not sort of a joke. You know, this is the danger of finding your Bible verse for the day. You know, sort of, what's my verse for today? Um, and, you know, this is the guy who did his Bible study that way, and he opened up, and the first verse he came to was Judas went out and hung himself. Well, okay, that can't, that can't be right. That can't be right. So you, want, you go and do likewise. Oh, no, this isn't good. And one more, what you do, do quickly. You're like, uh-oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's the type of uh, danger you can run into when you don't take context into account.